0: Let's open our Bibles, I hope with some measure of anticipation and excitement, to the little epistle of Jude Amen. at the end of your New Testaments. Let me remind you again of the power of God's Word when it is believed and received as God's Word. That's right. The Apostle Paul commended the Thessalonians this by these words. For this cause also thank we God, without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye did not receive it as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The word of God is able to effectually work. It will effect changes in your lives. If you'll believe it, if you'll receive it, certainly not as the words of your pastor and not even as the words of Jude, but as the words of the Holy Spirit of the living God, we want to receive this tiny little epistle of Jude. It's only got 25 verses. It's so short, we'd consider it a short letter, but the God of heaven chose that it would be one of our 27 epistles In the New Testament. Let us quickly review the ground we've covered. We've only started our study. We've made it down through verse 3, but I want to start quickly to review what we've covered because it's been two weeks. And knowing the weakness of our flesh, you have forgotten some of those things over 14 days' time. And so let us briefly remember them. Jude, first of all, introduces himself in a way that should cause us to pause. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. His identifier in the New Testament is the brother of James. James the less. James the son of Elpheus had a brother named Judas, and he's known as the brother of James in other places. But he doesn't start off his epistle with that. He starts it off with The servant of Jesus Christ because he was one of our Lord Jesus Christ's chosen apostles. The apostles and prophets of the New Testament are the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. But when we have the privilege of an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing a letter that we have in printed form, in front of our eyes, we are blessed. This is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, writing us 25 verses of warning and exhortation on what a true Christian looks like and will behave like. The servant of Jesus Christ. They were the greatest in the church. There were no gifts even close to that of apostle. They had it all. They had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ with their own eyes. The Apostle Paul, born out of due time, as he would say, spent much time with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Lord appeared to him a number of times. He had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ because that was their main message. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, has risen from the dead. Ascended into heaven and sits at God's right hand and is coming again to judge the earth. The Holy Spirit reminded them of everything Jesus had taught them. John 14 through 16 tells us that. So when Judas writes us, Jude, or Thaddeus, or Labaius, remember he had several names. When he writes us, he is writing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which is according to godliness and the wholesome words of our Lord. Let's not forget these little clauses, little phrases. When we read the word of God, the Bible tells us every word of God is pure. The Bible tells us man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And there is value in remembering the chosen writer of God for this little epistle. The author is the Holy Spirit. The writer is one of the apostles of our Lord. He describes his audience as those that are sanctified by God the Father. Do you remember what the doctrine of sanctification is? To sanctify a thing is to make it holy. It's to consecrate it. It's to separate it from ordinary use for God's use. We must be made holy or we will never enter heaven. Nothing that defileth can get into that place, according to Revelation chapter 21. We must be made holy, which is the great work of sanctification. God the Father chose us to sanctification before the world began. We read that in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to sanctification of the Spirit. God chose us to it. Jesus Christ died to secure it for us. And by His one death on the cross, He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. The Holy Spirit gives us a new nature when we're born again that is truly holy. So we're holy in God's plan. We're holy legally and positionally before God by Jesus Christ's work. And we're holy vitally because we have a vital new nature. We have vitality within us in our new man that is truly holy. And then we're going to be made holy. Holy. Holy, fully holy, totally holy, when we're resurrected and glorified. Our bodies will be holy, will be entirely holy. In the meantime, we are to live holy lives because as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or your lifestyle. So we have that right there. To them that are sanctified by God the Father. How did God the Father sanctify us? He chose us and started that golden chain of sanctification by choosing us to sanctification by the Spirit. Do you understand the doctrine? I believe if you've just heard and understood what I've just told you, you understand more than most seminary graduates. Sanctification is not a complex, difficult subject. It is to make someone holy because God is holy and heaven is holy and to get into His presence, you must be made holy and there are five phases of holiness taught in the Bible. And we just covered them. We covered them two weeks ago, but I hope you remember them. Sanctification can be laid hold of even by a child. To be holy is to be absolutely pure and free from any sin or anything that defiles. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. The Bible says in Habakkuk 2.13 about the holy purity of the God of heaven. Thank you, Lord. No wonder Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, I know I told I warned you that I was going to repeat this verse because it says that we need to do it always. Amen. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we're bound to say it. So I'm going to repeat it. It's a wonderful text. Jude. It also says that we're preserved in Christ Jesus. Don't we love that? We are preserved, meaning God is preserving us. He is able to keep us from falling. Verses 24 and 25. He is able to present us faultless, to stand before His throne with exceeding great joy. We shall never be lost. Jesus will not lose one of them the Father gave Him. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are preserved in Christ Jesus. Thank you, blessed God. And we're called. We have an authoritative exhortation and demand upon us to live the life of saints. Remember, we could take the word called in several senses, because the New Testament uses it in several different ways. But when we see salutations in epistles, we find that it generally is called to be saints. If God has sanctified us and we're preserved in Christ, we could become fatalistic and live any old way we choose. But that would be to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. We are called to be saints. That's the practical phase of sanctification. What we are supposed to do actively. This is the responsibility of man. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe in the responsibility of man. And this is how they come together. God is sovereign in choosing. God is sovereign in sending Christ. God is sovereign in regeneration. And God is sovereign in glorifying us at the end. But we are responsible to live holy lives. We're called to be saints. So we want to live up to that sanctification God has chosen us to. Yes. We're called. You know, we're, we're called to glory. We're Amen. called to peace. Right. We're called to virtue. We're called to heaven. We're called to be the sons of God. And we are called. God has charged us to live all those things because He's done them for us and He's given us the power to live those lives. Thank you, Heavenly Father. You know, believers may fall. Let's go back to that preserved in Christ Jesus for just a minute. Believers may fall at times from their proper understanding of the truth. Paul would describe it in Galatians chapter 5 as falling from grace. But though though you can fall, and maybe have your faith in some degree, in some measure, overthrown, you're still preserved in Christ Jesus. Because the Lord knoweth them that are His. When you read 2 Timothy 2, 19, and it says, The Lord knoweth them that are His, you need to know that the previous verse says that two false teachers were teaching false doctrine and overthrew the faith of some. But the Lord knoweth them that are His. Your faith can be messed up. It can be diverted. It can be distracted. It can be corrupted by false doctrine. But that does not change your preservation in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We do the very best we can, but we know that all our efforts, no matter how good and even the best of them, are tainted, often corrupted, false motives, error. We trust the Lord to purge it from us all the time. And what we're doing wrong to show us what we ought to do better. But that isn't the basis of your eternal life. The basis of your eternal life is the Lord knoweth them that are His. And then, based on that fact, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's being called to holiness. You know, a lazy pastor, or a lazy church member, or both of them being lazy together, can cause you to lose your salvation. Hold on. Don't run me out of town yet on a rail. Because I hope you all know what I mean. Yeah. Amen. Look at 1 Timothy 4.16. Let's remind ourselves what we mean. Paul told Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth. That's right. The reason we are to rightly divide the word of truth is because there are divisions to be made, and those divisions can be made poorly to wrongly divide the word of truth, and you end up in false doctrine. Look at this text. This is Paul to Timothy. Now, Paul has baptized Timothy, circumcised Timothy for the sake of the Jews that were in that area of Derby and Lystra, ordained Timothy, and says that Timothy was the best minister he had, Philippians chapter 2. Now, why did he write this verse to Timothy? First Timothy 4.16, "...take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine." Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Here's a salvation that was still dependent upon Timothy being a faithful minister, long after he had been chosen in Christ, long after he had believed on Christ, long after Christ had justified him, long after he had been born again. Here's a salvation that was still dependent on him. We can't just blow through the Bible and read the word salvation and just think of one thing. Going to heaven instead of to hell. We must look at the Bible in its context and realize this is a different salvation. Timothy needed to do two things. He needed to take heed to himself and he needed to take heed to the doctrine. Continue in them, those two things. Watch your personal life, Timothy. Watch the doctrine, Timothy. If you will keep doing those two things, you will be able to save yourself from falling into sin and from leading your congregation astray, either practically or doctrinally. That's the text. So when I say you can lose your salvation, you can lose your holiness, your practical holiness, because you're living a foolish carnal life led there by a foolish and carnal minister or led there in spite of a good godly minister. This is our duty among each other to consider one another, to provoke, to love, and to good works that we would all live up to our calling of being the children of God. Let's go back to Jude. I hope that was a sufficient reminder and explanation for you to remember that text. Timothy was already saved. What in the world was Paul talking about? A different salvation. The practical phase of salvation. The practical phase of sanctification. The practical phase of truth. Because a lazy minister can lead his congregation astray, and all you have to do is look around and realize all the churches in this country can't be uh, holding the same doctrine because they're all so diverse and different in what they believe and teach. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied is a wonderful apostolic blessing, something that we should learn from and appreciate. God has shown us his mercy, his peace, and his love, but can you have too much of it? No. Let it be multiplied to us. Amen. If you need help and you're praying for me, You can just pray this verse right here. I would not mind the mercy of God and His peace and His love to be multiplied to me. I think you're probably saying the same thing to me. I hope you are. This is how we ought to pray for each other. I want it to be multiplied. I don't want it just to be added to. I'd like it to be multiplied. That means it's at least several times bigger. I'd like more of it. That's a wonderful blessing. We come to verse 3. Beloved, When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Brethren, this is the chief lesson from the book of Jude. He wrote with a diligent desire to remind them and encourage them in the common salvation. When we use the expression common salvation, or when we read it right here, we've got to think of what salvation is under consideration and what salvation is common to all of God's people. And we understand four of the five phases that I was just talking about. God's choice, Christ's death, the Spirit's work, and our future glorification. The chain of grace that is in Romans chapter 8. Those things are certain and they're common to all of God's elect. But the degree of faithfulness is not so there's a difference between Abraham and Lot there's a difference between Paul and Demas there's a difference between Samson and David there's a difference so it's not common but those phases of salvation are common to all of God's elect he made diligent effort to write about this common salvation that we have and it's wonderful it's not common to the whole population of the earth it's common to God's people we're on our way to heaven That's a common thing we have. We've all been sanctified, justified, and forgiven by the death of Jesus Christ. That's common to all of us. We've all been born again, if we're born again. That's common to us. Brethren, I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, but when I did, it was needful for me. And so we come upon the great lesson of the book. It was needful for me to write and to exhort you. An exhortation is to press someone to their duties. Jude saw the need, and we should see the need to exhort one another to defend our faith. Right. We live in a time of a multiplicity of ideas and doctrines and religions and denominations and splinter groups and cults and all sorts of people. We should see the need ourselves and earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Do you see the need to contend? We have the words here in Jude 1 Three, that we should earnestly contend. What does it mean to contend? It means to strive. It means to strive in opposition to something. It means to engage in conflict. It means to fight. We need to fight for the truth. There's many fighting against the truth. The devil's fighting against the truth. Many are following him against the truth. We need to fight. It was needful. For me to write you and exhort you. If it was needful in his day, what about our day? Is our day better or worse than his day? Now, he had plenty of false teachers. All you have to do is read the New Testament and find out how many false teachers there were and false ideas floating around. The resurrection is past. There is no resurrection of the body. The, the synagogue of Satan is the place we ought to worship. You know, a little bit of idolatry is okay. Having a man in our congregation and sleeping with his father's wife, that's Okay. You know, on and on. There were, there were errors. Right. What about today? Here's what the Bible says. Evil seducers shall wax right. worse right. and worse. Amen. Deceiving and being deceived. Yes. Second Timothy 3.13 So we, we should recognize the fact that we need to earnestly contend that this exhortation is not just to Jude's initial and first readers, but to us as well. Amen. And we should be provoked by it. Yes, I'm slowing down and going back over a verse because you need to be provoked by this verse. You cannot earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints if you don't know it. That's right. It takes a little knowledge to believe something. That's where most Christians are when I say most. 98% of them. It takes a little tiny, teeny, weeny bit of information and knowledge to believe something. All you have to do is hear the words and you say, I believe it. It takes more knowledge to be able to teach that. And you know what Paul would say about each one of you? When for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. Hebrews 5.12 through 14. Then it takes a whole lot of knowledge to be able to defend the truth. Do you hear me? It takes a little tiny bit, basically none, to believe something. It takes more knowledge to be able to teach it and explain it and communicate it to others. But it takes a whole lot of knowledge to be able to defend it against attacks by men who lie in wait with cunning craftiness and the slight of men to deceive. So you can't just come in here and think that I can spoon feed you enough that you're going to become men and women and youth able to defend the truth. You must apply yourself. You must read the Word of God every day and you must meet, read it meditatively and you must read it contemplatively and you must read it considering what is said there and line up the arguments in your mind and lay hold of verses and memorize them so that you have an answer to give to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is within you right. and then to give an answer to those that don't ask a reason of the hope that is within you that try to steal your hope. Right. This is why the epistle is here. How many of you are able to stand and say, I believe it, I can teach it, and I can defend it? We'll have some war games to see how well you can defend it. It takes a lot of knowledge. There's necessities that you've got to have in place. If we're going to fight because it says to earnestly contend, to contend is to fight. There have only been a few men in the history of the world that could fight. Joshua and Caleb had to earnestly contend. Amen. They had ten princes of Israel stand up and say, we can't take the land. They said we can take the land. Look what God did to Egypt. You say, well, that's a simple point. I can remember that. Well, there's a whole lot of simple points you need to remember. Because it's amazing what people can forget. It is amazing what they will forget, what they choose to forget, and what the devil and false teachers want them to forget. But can you remember basic simple points and pound them home? God delivered us from Egypt. And those seven puny nations of Canaan are nothing in comparison to Egypt and his pharaoh. Don't you remember the waterlogged bodies that came up on the shore of the Red Sea? Don't you remember the ten plagues? Come on, folks! Joshua and Caleb blessed their hearts. What a man. What a ruined life because of that nation. Do you know what he had to do for the next 40 years? He had to preach funerals every day. Smile with me. Come on. Do you know what Joshua and Caleb had to do for the next 40 years? Preach funerals every single day. Till they buried every single one of their graduating class. Right. Then Joshua and Caleb get in there and they fight for five years. And they take the whole land of Canaan. They blow out 70 cities. The cities are listed in the Bible. Right. They take seven nations greater and mightier than they. They take 70 cities, and when they're all done, Caleb is now 85 years old, does he say, I'm going to retire, Joshua. I'm 85. We've taken the land. We've divided it to all the tribes. We're here. We're the only two that made it, but I'm going to retire. Is that what Caleb said? Caleb came to Joshua and said, Joshua, are you still my friend? Do you still remember that 45 years ago, I made a deal with Moses? That the whole nation could be afraid of the Anakims because they were giants? Do you remember that Moses made a deal with me? That out of the whole land of Canaan, I got one little piece of ground for me and my family? And at that little piece of ground is that mountain right there that has the giants on it. I want that mountain. I will take it myself that has the giants on it. Well, do you, Are you still my friend Joshua? And do you remember what Moses said? Do you love the man? Amen. Amen. We know a couple of Caleb's, don't we? We know several of them. We've had a multiplicity of the name Caleb. Multiplying of the name, it's a great name. Amen. Do you, know what, you know what Caleb ought to grow up with and wake up with every morning? The words of Caleb in the Bible. Give me this mountain. Right. The mountain that had the giants on it. Give me this mountain. I mean, that is, oh, doesn't that get you excited? Yes. He was 85. He said, Joshua, look at me. I'm, I'm as good as I was 45 years ago. Boy, that's a good thing to say. I'm as good as I was. I'm still still strong. Come on. Don't deny me that mountain. These are the men we want to be like. This is fighting. They had to fight the whole nation of Israel. Let me tell you, God stepped into that battle. God stepped into that battle and killed those ten other spies. And then God killed every single one of their generation so that they brought in their children. And the glory of the Lord appeared. I hope you read Numbers 14 last night. It helped so much. But it doesn't just say that we're supposed to contend. To contend is to strive and to fight for the truth against error. It says to earnestly contend. And when the Bible uses an adverb like earnestly, it means serious as opposed to trifling. In an emphatic sense, intensely serious, gravely impassioned in any purpose, feeling, conviction or action. Sincerely zealous. That's what it means. Earnestly contend. There's a reason why we rail against error. There's a reason why we name false teachers. We're supposed to. There's a reason we get upset. We're supposed to. We're supposed to fight for the faith once delivered to the saints and fight against any opposition to it. There's only one apostolic faith. It doesn't have alternatives. It doesn't allow inventions. And there is no substitute for it. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, etc., That apostolic faith was once delivered to the saints. It is not being discovered or improved. It is only being watered down, diluted, and corrupted. And we must return to apostolic paths. We must go back to the New Testament. We try to do that every day. We try to do it every Lord's Day to go back to the New Testament and to find our beloved brother Paul who wrote us how, who wrote and told us how we are to follow Jesus Christ. We are Pauline, apostolic Christians. Followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament with Paul being our apostle. Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles, he magnified his office, and he's the one we want to follow. You cannot follow many things that Jesus taught, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's a large and extensive document on the website called Jesus or Paul. Paul was a, Jesus was a Jew, and his ministry was to Jews. That's right. At the front end of the time of Reformation, right. while, the, while the religious worship of God was being changed. We can't follow... Listen, he said in Matthew 23, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatsoever they bid you do, do it. We do not follow that advice. We are not Jews living in the year 30 A.D. or 26 A.D. We follow Paul. Paul was a Pharisee that was converted out of Phariseeism to Christianity. He said, be ye followers of me as I am a follower of Christ. Because Paul shows Gentiles how to follow Christ. Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, but Jesus had to be circumcised. Amen. Right. Right. We're Pauline apostolic Christians. What do you need to earnestly contend for the faith? You need knowledge. Do you know your Bible? Do you know it? Do you know where the verses are found? Do you know the answers to questions? Do you know the answers to fundamental popular errors? Do you know them? You've got to have knowledge. You've got to have commitment. I am committed to the truth. I will not change from the truth. I don't care if all men forsake me. I hope that you're saying that. It is is true of me. Let my wife forsake me. Let my children forsake me. But I hope I will never leave God's truth. What God has shown me from His Word, I hope I will always hold fast. As a minister, I'm commanded to hold fast the faithful Word as I have been taught. You are committed to stand steadfast and be not moved away from the hope of the Gospel. You only show that you're a child of God with an inheritance in heaven if you continue in the things that you've been taught. Jesus had a whole multitude say to Him, We believe. John chapter 8, 31 through 33. He turned to them and said, If ye continue in My word, then are ye My disciples indeed. And it was only a few verses later they all left Him. And He called them the children of the devil. John 8, 44. It's, it's, It's if we continue. Jude 1, three. it was needful, it's more needful now, to write unto you and exhort you. I'm exhorting you. I'm not mad at you. I'm exhorting you. Amen. So you sound like it's a life or death matter. Oh, it's, way, it's way beyond that. Oh, who cares about life or death? The best thing you can do to me is kill me. Shoot me. But don't you mess with the truth of God's word. Amen. You shoot me, I just go to heaven. Hello? Help me out. Anybody, anybody packing this morning? This ain't going to stop it, but I'll pull it aside. It's more important than life or death. Right. This is the truth of the gospel. Yes. Yes. I want my children to have it. I want my children's children to have it. I want their children to have it, if right. the Lord tarries. So we, do you? that little girl going to be a great woman in Zion? Is she going to hold tenaciously to the Word of God? That little guy? Is he going to hold tenaciously to the truth? How about that little girl that's coming into the world? Is she going to come in this afternoon? Are you going to teach her the Word of God? That when we're dead and buried, fertilizing dandelions, that she's going to know the truth of the gospel and defend it against a, gener- a generation that hates it more and more? We're bringing children into a world that hates the truth. It's so full of cults and, and ideas and denominations and religions. Lord, help us. You need knowledge and you need commitment. And you need passion. It takes passion to be earnestly contending for the faith. You've got to have a love for truth and a hatred of error. That's passion. Do you know what David would say? This is a sweet psalmist of Israel. You know, David was David is what we could call the Renaissance man. They, You know, their idea of a Renaissance man is this effeminate guy that sits around and paints pictures And once in a while takes up some fake idea of military action. But if you want a real man, it's David in the Bible. He could sit around and play his harp very proficiently and writes poetry. He could kill Goliath and bring a dowry to King Saul for his daughter of 204 skins of the Philistines. That's quite a dowry. But he could also talk this way. You know it well. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right and I hate every false way. Amen. Let me be like David. And let me die like David. Amen. Don't let me be like Saul who ended up going to the witch of Endor and committing suicide on the battlefield. Let me die like David in his bed saying God hath made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure this is all my salvation and all my desire. Although most of my family's not included in it. You know how he said that? Though he make it not to grow. Amen. But all the sons of Belial, these are his next words on his deathbed. Right. The hose is right here with oxygen. But the sons of Belial, let them all be thrown into the fire. Right. How much do you love the truth of God's word? You've got to be passionate about it. And you've got to be forward. That when you smell error, you attack it. When you smell error, you get it corrected. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. James 5, 19 and 20. The first reference was Galatians 6, 1 and 2. You've got to be forward to do it. Now let me repeat a verse again. I used it ten days ago when I was with you. I used it a few minutes ago and I repeat it again. When for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. It is terrible and it's a shame and it bothered Paul about the Hebrew Christians that those Hebrew Christians still had to be taught fundamental, elementary, rudimentary aspect to the gospel. They should have been teaching those things. He says, I can't even tell you all the wonderful things I could tell you because you're not ready to receive them. God chose you to live in the perilous times of the last day. That's right. God chose us for this period of time. Yeah. We should be thankful for it. We should take it as a commitment from Him that we are able to do what He's calling us to do. You've got to learn to recognize the risk. That's what I'm, that's what this verse is here for, to recognize the risk. And verse 4 is ver- to recognize the risk. There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly, men that turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we have verse 3 is because of verse 4. Because there were men creeping into the church all through the epistles. Jude saw the exhortation as needful because of those men that are there described. Now I taught you something two weeks ago that I hope I want to remind, review with you, remind you of. There were three great heresies taught in the New Testament. Three great categories. The first one is ritualism. That's going to a church that just goes through a ritual. You just sit there basically and watch a play acted out on a stage. They go through the motions. There's a prayer book set up. The prayers are read. The prayers are not prayed. They have scripture readings that have been picked for them ten years ago and printed off in a book and every single church is doing the same thing. Their soul's not in it, their mind's not in it, their heart's not in it the same way as when you have spontaneous worship of the Spirit by the Spirit as Jesus taught God required to be acceptable. Right. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It is an internal religion, not an external religion. We don't need stained glass. We don't need pictures of crosses. We don't need any graven image to help us worship God because it should all be in our heart. Right. because God is seeking worshipers that will worship Him in spirit. That's it. Right. it is an internal worship. It is a worship of your soul and your spirit to God. It is not done with externals. It doesn't have to be in Jerusalem. It doesn't have to be in Mecca. It can be even in Greenville, South Carolina. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Yes. Ceremonial ritualism. Jesus had to fight it His entire life. The Pharisees were masters of it. He said, You have all these customs given to you by men. You have made... You have ruined the worship of God by your vain traditions received from your fathers and the washing of cups, the washing of cups and pots and such like things ye do to ruin my religion. He had to warn his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which he called hypocrisy. He said, outwardly you look like you're all white and beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. That is ritualism. That's going through the motions of an external religion. That is not the New Testament. The New Testament has changed. It's sacramentalism. It's the churches that have sacraments. A sacrament is an outward sign that conveys inward grace. We don't believe that. God conveys grace inwardly. There's no outward sign that conveys inward grace. We don't baptize to convey grace. We baptize because of grace. We don't take the Lord's Supper to convey grace. We take the Lord's Supper because of grace. Amen. We remember His grace. Right. We symbolize His grace. That's why we're baptized. Paul, Jesus, our Lord, had to fight it over and over again because the Pharisees had all their rituals. Have you ever read His Sermon on the Mount? Ye have heard by them of old time. Right. You have a Jewish tradition that thou shalt not kill. Hold on. Moses said, Thou shalt not kill. God said, Thou shalt not kill. But they had a tradition that limited the words, Thou shalt not kill, to the outward, overt, overt, literal act. Jesus said, Ye have heard by them of old time. He did not say, It is written, because He wasn't referring to the Bible. He was referring to the false doctrine of the Pharisees. Ye have heard by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, I'm going to expand that commandment back to where God intended it to be. But I say unto you that if you are angry with your brother without a cause, you are guilty of the sixth commandment. If you call your brother a fool without a cause, if you come into my house and you are going to offer an offering, and you remember that your brother has ought against you, put your gift down, put it in your car, and go make peace with that brother. I will not receive your worship. Our Lord Jesus Christ had to fight externalism. I haven't killed anybody. What are you getting on my case for? I'm not a murderer. If you're angry with your brother without a cause, if you're a backbiter, slanderer, whisperer, if you're a... Oh, yes. You can kill your brother 20 different ways. And Jesus opened it all up because he had to fight that external religion that looks so clean because I'm not a murderer. But you know what? We've all got murder and lying in our hearts. And it's so easy to let it out in some little way. The second one is Jewish legalism that Paul had to fight for. Did you get the point that I made two weeks ago? Have you thought about Paul's epistles? What's half of Romans? Fighting Jewish legalism. That's why he has to keep talking about the law. <laughs> These people that wanted to go back under the law. Haven't you heard about grace? Romans. The whole book of Galatians. Right. The whole book of Galatians to the churches of Galatia, Paul had to write and combat Judaizers. When we use the word Judaizer, we mean someone that is a Jew or pretends to be a Jew or thinks Jews are special and wants to take believers back under some part or all of the law of Moses. Their favorite ones were circumcision, the Sabbath, and dietary laws. All three of which are condemned by Paul over and over. They're gone. Jesus nailed the Sabbath and circumcision and the dietary laws to his cross. We are not under that law. Paul had to fight the whole book of Galatians, the whole book of Hebrews, half of the book of Romans, part of the books of Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Colossians 2. Three quarters of the chapter. Philippians 3. Three quarters of the chapter. Ephesians 2 and 3. It's ridiculous how much he had to fight against Judaizers. A Jew or a pretend Jew or someone who thinks the Jews are special that want to take one or more parts of the law of Moses and put them on believers. Gentile Christians of the New Testament. Paul earnestly contended. Look at Galatians. Look at Galatians to see what he thought of Judaizers. There are three hobby horses. Circumcision, the Sabbath, and dietary laws. That's why you have verses like this. Let no man therefore judge you in respect of meat, drink, holy days, Sabbath days. For they are a shadow of Christ. They are just a shadow of Christ. But the body, the the actual reality that makes the shadow is here. It's Christ. Follow Christ. The reason therefore is in Colossians 2.16 is because when Jesus died on the cross, He nailed those ordinances to the cross and they've all passed away. If you're circumcised, you're only circumcised for some medical, hygienic, or cosmetic reason. We don't get circumcised to to win favor with God. He doesn't care if you're circumcised or not. When Paul was in Derby and Lystra, because of the Jews there, and Paul said, I became under the law to those that were under the law, that I might win those that are under the law, he circumcised Timothy. When he was in Jerusalem, and he brought with him another minister under study named Titus, and he knew that there were men there that were making a doctrinal issue out of circumcision, he wouldn't get near circumcising Titus. That's right. Galatians verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. The Galatians primarily were in love with circumcision, but they also included the Sabbath because he says that in Romans in Galatians 4 and verse 9 through 11. I marvel. He was shocked. How soon they were removed from Him that called you into the grace of Christ. This is Paul earnestly contending. Which is not another. It's not another gospel. But there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. It's not another gospel because there's only one faith. This is a perversion of the one faith. And then he says, let him be accursed. Anyone that preaches that other gospel, even if it's an angel from heaven in verse 8. If it's any man, let him be accursed. Verse 9. Look at chapter 2. He mentions false brethren in chapter 2, verse 4. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. The law of Moses was a chain. It was a bondage. It was an anchor. The only purpose God ever gave the law of Moses for was to condemn you. Because no one can keep it. It was to show the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It's a religion of bondage. But the gospel is a religion of liberty. We're at rest every single day. And he said, False brethren came in to spy out your liberty and to put you back into bondage. What's his attitude toward them? Verse 5, To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. We want the truth to continue with you, Galatians. I wouldn't listen to them, not even for an hour, when I was in Jerusalem. I wouldn't circumcise Titus, verse 3. That's in chapter 2. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Now that's not very nice. Who hath bewitched you? For you to believe the ridiculous idea that you can add to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ by keeping the Sabbath, or keeping holy days, or being circumcised, or eating and drinking things according to the book of Leviticus. You have been bewitched. That ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, 12. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. I would they were cut off. You know what Paul's attitude was toward false teachers that take God's saints and corrupt their understanding of the truth? I wish they were dead. I would they were cut off that trouble you. Now that's earnestly contending the whole book of Galatians. You've got to read the whole thing. He has wonderful comparisons in here teaching the false doctrine of the Judaizers. We are Pauline followers of Jesus Christ. He was the apostle of Gentiles. We don't listen to anyone else. Moses is not our apostle. Moses doesn't have a thing to do with New Testament religion. Moses didn't have an idea of New Testament religion. Moses made a few prophecies that he probably didn't understand because the New Testament tells us he didn't understand about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the prophet likened to Moses. We are Pauline followers of Jesus Christ because God gave Paul the Apostle of the Gentiles and inspired him to write the epistles of the New Testament that tell us how we what we ought to believe and how we ought to live. He had to fight this his whole life. Paul would go out into a, a new country. He'd raise the dead, heal the sick, speak in foreign languages, take up poison, take up serpents, drink poison. Could, he could cause the blind to see. And we would preach the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and salvation by him only. And he would start a church. As soon as he left town, along would come these little grubbing false teachers that would take advantage of his work his whole life. They did it his entire life. None of them were capable of evangelism. None of them had ever done anything worthwhile. He says all they can do is compare themselves among themselves and they're not wise for doing so. Let them try my line of work. Let them go preach some place where no one has been before. All they do is take advantage of things made ready to their hand, meaning there was already a church established that believed in supporting the ministry, so they would float in and take the collections. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 if you want to read about it there. But you know what the council at Jerusalem is for? Same cause. False brethren came up out of Jerusalem into the church at Antioch of Syria and taught that it was necessary to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses for Gentiles to be saved. Paul and Barnabas, when they heard that, and those men said they'd come out of Jerusalem, they immediately got on their sandals and took the 300-mile trip down to Jerusalem to ask the apostles what in the world are their men coming out of this church for and coming up to Antioch telling Gentiles they got to do these ridiculous things from Moses' law. And so all the apostles and elders came together, and you had the Council of Jerusalem, which is Acts chapter 15, and the whole purpose was to fight Jewish legalism. We are not legalists in any sense of the word when it's understood properly. A legalist is someone who takes something from the law. That's why it's called legalism. Something from the law of Moses and makes it a requirement for you to have eternal life. We don't do any such thing. People call us legalists because they don't understand the word, because we happen to be conservative in a few points of doctrine and practice. We're trying not to live like the world, so they call us legalists, but they don't understand the term. Legalism is when you take something from the law of Moses and make it necessary for salvation. Right. Paul had to fight it his whole life. Let me let me close with, some, with this. And on Wednesday night, if you'll come back, I don't know if you will or not. I hope you will. But on Wednesday night, I want to go over this more, because I think it'll be helpful. Let me give you a, a few simple cult keys. Do you want to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints? Here are a few simple cult keys that I can teach a five-year-old. First one, if the denomination or the religion or the cult or the idea or the church or the kingdom or whatever they call themselves has an apostle, it is a lie of the devil. Amen. If they have anyone they call an apostle or a prophet, it's a lie of the devil. Do you know how simple that is? We're going to learn it on Wednesday night because I'm going to show you all the verses in the Bible Amen. so that you can just lock it in your head. That group says that they have an apostle. That's a lie. Do you know why they say they're an apostle? Because they're going to go extra biblical on you. They want somebody that says they're an apostle so that they can tell you something that you have to believe on the level of the Bible. They're liars. An apostle had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. There's no one alive today that has seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. There are no apostles. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10 says the gift of prophecy would fail as soon as the completed scriptures were in place. The completed scriptures were in place in 70 A.D., and there hasn't been a prophet since. If you're following some group, or you're hearing about some group, or somebody from some group is telling you about some group that has a prophet, no, they don't have a prophet. They have a liar that calls himself a prophet. You know, we have churches in this city that claim they have an apostle. And, and, And the biggest church in our city that claims they have an apostle, the apostle claims that his wife is... An is. That's pretty neat. They're liars. Yep. Yep. Right. An apostle had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. An apostle had signs and wonders that staggered the imagination. Nobody has them today. I'm not talking about blowing and having staged choirs fall over in their choir chairs. That isn't a miracle. That's right. How about this one? Date of origin. When did your religion get started? 1830. Who was it? Joseph Smith. How about yours? 1844. Who was it? Ellen White. When did yours get started? 1874. Who was it? Charles Taze Russell. If they can give you a date like that, or you know that date about their organization, you know that you have frauds. That's all you gotta do is know the date of origin. What's the date of origin of the true church of Jesus Christ? 33 33 A.D. The Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles are the foundation of that church. It wasn't lost. God gave the church great wings of an eagle so that it could fly into the wilderness and be preserved there. It has never gone away. It's always been in the world. The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. When you get some church like Armstrongism that was started in the 1950s or 40s, that's, that's just way too young it can't be the truth all you've got to do is know a few of these bible facts Amen. what's the date of origin you're too young you've got to be 2,000 years old there have been baptist churches that practiced in simplicity like ours for 2,000 years yes. if you don't know that pick any one of the hundred baptist histories that are available that will lead you through it century by century go online if you can't afford the book and type in Baptist history. Put in Bogomiles, Waldensians, Paulicians, Paterines, Puritans. And find out that we have been, we've existed for 2,000 years. Like us. Different names. Just like we're the Church of Greenville. What would that mean to somebody reading about this history 400 years from now after Greenville's been buried by a volcano? What would that mean to anybody? But you know, if they read about our church, the way we baptize, the Bible that we use, and it's only got 66 books, not 75 books, all they would need to know is five or ten things, and they would say, That looks like the, an apostolic church. That's right. How about any failed prophecies? If if any of their prophets have ever said anything that didn't come to pass, what do you know about them? They're liars. Deuteronomy eighteen twenty through 22. Moses warned Israel and said, if you ever get nervous about trying to figure out a real prophet or not, if he ever says anything that doesn't come to pass, you know he's a liar. I don't know why anyone wants to learn the Christology of the Jehovah's Witnesses to do battle with them on your front door. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't understand. All you got to do is ask them, did Charles Taze Russell ever prophesy the end of the earth and the second coming of Jesus Christ? If they're honest, they'll say, how many times? They'll roll their eyes and they'll say, how many times? And if you want to be ready for them, then just print it off. Just go online and say, Charles Taze Russell, prophecies, end of the world. There's so many. It takes a timeline because right. every couple of years he was changing it to a new one. That's all you got to do. Then you know it's a false. It's the whole religion's false. Right. Every single member in it's false. You don't need to know anything else about it. It's false. It's a lie of the devil. A man claimed to be a prophet and he couldn't do the work of a prophet. Right. Right. Simple cult keys. Let's earnestly contend for the faith. These are, these are, oh, I got, I got a string of them for Wednesday night. I'm just, I'm just getting your appetite warmed up. How about a priesthood? If they mention a priesthood of any kind, Levitical, Melchizedek, or any kind of a priesthood, you know you've got something wrong. Roman Catholic Church, all you have to do is ask them, do you guys have priests? Yeah. Bye bye. You just took care of one sixth of the world's population with one question. Do you know why? Because there's only one priest you know what it says in Hebrews 3.1? Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. That's it. Amen. We have a high priest. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an apostle. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Hebrews 3.1. Can I teach this to a five-year-old? Do you know it? Old Testament or New Testament? What's more important New Testament. for people living in the New Testament? <laughs> Do you know what Hebrews 8.13 says? Listen to these words. For 1,500 years, the Old Testament was in force. Was it called the Old Testament? No, are you kidding? How could it be called the Old Testament? It was called the covenant God's made with us. Okay? Jesus, when he picked up that cup at the Last Supper, and he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. As soon as he used that three-letter adjective, what happened? Hebrews 8. What? Old. The other one became old. As soon as he said that, people want to know, when did it happen? As soon as he said that. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. What did that do to the covenant that God had with the Jews? It made it old. Hebrews 8, 13. In that he calleth it new, he hath made the other old. In that it is old, it is passing away. If you find someone that's dealing with a covenant that's passed away, you know he's false. We are And then if he doesn't emphasize Paul out of the New Testament, you know he's false. Because Paul magnified his office for us Gentiles to know who we ought to listen to. Paul sets our doctrinal foundation. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Just ask. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Is he the Word of God? Fully God? Fully man? Fully God? Fully man? Tempted in all points like as we are? Did he rise from the dead bodily? Or did he just rise from the dead in a spirit? Easy. We'll stop right there. I'm tell- date of origin. I just love it. Oh, I love these Mormons when they write me and say, Do you have a priesthood in your church? We do. Oh, please. You mean you mean that, that table full of old guys out in Salt Lake City that pop over every few years and they have to replace them with someone else? Is that what you're talking about? Your apostles? Your Levitical priesthood, your Melchizedek priesthood, mm-hmm. yeah, we have one. And I take them to one verse, Hebrews 3.1. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Amen. You can have your profession, I've got mine. That's a simple. Isn't that simple? Amen. We have an apostle, we have a high priest. Do you know what that high priest has done? He's made all of us priests. Right. Every man, woman, and child in here that's born of God can go straight into the presence of God by that one high priest. That is interceding for them. I know I didn't make very much progress, but I made all the progress that I wanted to. And Jude wrote to exhort us to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Do you know that faith? Do you know that faith experimentally inside? Do you love the object of that faith, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know that He is your high priest? Do you know that He is your apostle? Do you know that He has given you a rest for the rest of your life? If you believe on Him as your all-sufficient Savior, you do not have to do anything else to earn approval with God. It's all been secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.